Workplace psychological safety is the most pressing need we have today. But do you have the tools to transform a toxic workplace into a psychologically safe one? We have a course for that. It is called From Tormentor to Mentor, Building a Psychologically Safe Workplace. With this self-study three-hour online course, you can equip yourself and your organization to understand workplace bullying and harassment. More importantly, our course shows you how to build a foundation for a safe and healthy workplace using the SWELL principle, safety, well-being, encouragement, and learning. Elimination of bullying will only work if a foundation of psychological workplace safety has been intentionally built and maintained. Go to shiftworkplace.co slash tormentor to mentor to learn more. That's shiftworkplace.co slash tormentor to mentor. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Today, I have a special treat for you, Luis Gonzalez, who is a global business communications consultant and master facilitator. I am really excited to interview him today because he has more than 25 years experience helping improve business outcomes for organizations and has successfully driven learning initiatives incorporating effective communication, cross-cultural communication, customer satisfaction, and soft skills training. He works with CEOs, leaders, and individuals positively impacting business outcomes through communication in global, multicultural, and remote work settings. Luis has lived and worked in India, in Mexico, and Brazil. He's a keynote speaker and a member of the Association for Training and Development, the Association of International Educators, and CTAR, which is a Society for International Education Training and Research. Welcome, Luis. Marie, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you could join us today, and I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your story. So that was the formal bio. Please tell the audience a bit about who you are. So absolutely. Luis is my name. I go by Luis. I'm a master facilitator and speaker with Fierce Inc., Fierce Conversations. We're an award-winning leadership development company. And basically, we help people improve their performance, help companies improve their performance, and help individuals improve their goals through effective communication. So essentially, I'm a communications consultant and trainer. Been with Fierce for about five years. As you mentioned in my bio, I've lived in many places, most notably Mexico, India, and Brazil, all doing the same kind of work that I'm doing now with cross-cultural communication and working with global teams. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, second generation Mexican-American, born and raised in Latin American kind of a culture, but here in the United States, went to Catholic school all my life. And so I've had a lot of exposure to different cultures coming from, I guess you could say a bicultural background myself, being a Mexican-American. And in addition to the consulting work and the training work and all the communication work that I've done, I also took about five years off and just traveled the world in the United States as a gypsy. And then uh, had that experience and then came back to, at that time, my role was in hospitality with the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. So lots of cultural experiences and overlapping those cultural experiences with communication and cultural communication, cross-cultural communication. All of this has been my passion, you could say, I guess, for the last 25 years or so. You have had a, a wide breadth of experience. And I'm just wondering, do you speak languages other than English? I do. I speak Spanish uh, fluently. I used to say that I speak Portuguese as well conversationally, but it's been some time that I've engaged in Portuguese conversations, so it might be a little rusty, but I guess we can go ahead and tick that box as well. And while living in India, I did pick up some words in those local languages to make sure I was able to purchase things at the store and you know not get ripped off by taxi drivers and things like that. It really it 
gives you a different lens on the world when you can speak another language because you realize you're using different parts of your brain and that you're accessing different parts of yourself every time you speak a different language, right? I would agree with that. I've likened it to a chip in my brain that I can switch over to. So when I'm speaking Spanish to, let's say, family members or other members of a Spanish-speaking community, it's like I almost become that. It's like even my body language and the way I think and the way that I express myself. And then I can leave that conversation and very quickly be in a different conversation with English-speaking U.S. Americans And that chip in my brain changes. And I suddenly, I'm now shifting into a completely American, 100% US American English speaker. My body language is going to be different and the way and style that I communicate is also going to change. Totally. I speak French, a little bit of German, but when I speak French, everything feels softer. I'm more descriptive. I pay more attention to people's emotions. When I'm speaking English, I tend to be more on the organizational, present the information, get to the point type of communication. And I am conscious of that. And sometimes I try to switch it, but I'm not able to switch it so much because you really become located in a language, like your body becomes located there. You live in that language. That's interesting. If I could just speak to that for a moment, uh, you probably heard of the term code switching. And I've had people call me out on that. They have observed me. Let's say I'm in a conversation hanging out with a group of US Americans and suddenly I'm distracted and find myself for a moment in a conversation with a Mexican-American like myself. And we're speaking English, but the way that I talk and my body language and everything changes and I'm unaware of it. And then the people I'm with will call that out and say, why did you talk to her like that? Why did you say it like that? And half the time I don't even realize that I'm doing it. On the other hand, on the flip side of that, I've also had to be very cautious because generally speaking in a Latin American or Mexican-American or a Mexican context, culturally speaking, you're allowed to get passionate and wave your arms in the air and even raise your voice and interrupt people mid-sentence. That generally doesn't fly in a U.S. American, uh, more direct uh, communication style context, if that makes any sense. It does, because there are interruption patterns in each language. And acceptable ways of interrupting have to do with who controls the conversation and the power in the conversation as well. That's right. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. I I totally hear you on that. So um, let me go back into actually, it's a nice segue into the groups that you were born into, because you're obviously able to live the code in different groups. So those groups that you were born into, and it looks like it was simultaneous in different groups, right? So those groups that you were born into, what would you say has influenced your sense of culture and self now? They've all influenced. um, I'll just share with you briefly without going into too much detail. So obviously, I'm you know from a Mexican-American background, a second generation Mexican-American. My grandparents on my father's side walked across the border from Mexico to California, which they could do back in those days and began to pick in the fields. And so initially, my initial uh, influence was this hardworking, working class. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as they say, and nothing is going to come easy and we have to work hard. And we're thankful and grateful. That was my first influence. Now, having said that, my parents divorced when I was very young, and both of my parents remarried African-American people. So now I have brothers and sisters that are half Mexican and half black. And I grew up and was raised, lived for almost 18 years in a town called Compton, California, Some of your listeners may have heard of that. Uh, Compton, California is nowadays known for rap music and gang violence, but in the 60s and 70s, it was quite a different place, but it was very diverse, predominantly African-American, also Anglo, uh, white, if you will, uh, people living there as well back in those days, and just about everybody else. So initially, 
I was, uh, for lack of a better term, injected with this kind of a Latin American, Mexican American, hardworking context. That was my worldview, very Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school all my life. And in addition to that, I was exposed to African-American culture, if we can call it that. I was exposed to how the different cultures in the city of Compton, where I grew up, even in my classroom, how we communicated, what was acceptable, what was not acceptable. And so I was able to kind of adapt my style, if you will, my communication style for when I was in that kind of a context. And then eventually leaving that context, leaving Compton, California, after I graduated from high school and just diving headfirst into the hospitality world with Ritz-Carlton, that's a whole other culture, a culture of excellence, if I may say so, uh, that also influenced me. So where I am today is just an influence of all of that. And I can't really say that one has influenced me more than another, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're all part of you growing into yourself Absolutely. and you living in the world organically. That's right. Responding to the world and, and people responding to you. It's really delightful, actually. If everybody had all of the experiences that you had, even just a few of them, you know, they would be so much more open, curious. Yeah. They would yeah. suspend judgment. They would be interested in learning from other people rather than jumping to conclusions about them, don't you think? I would agree. And, you know, I'm very grateful that I did have that kind of an upbringing because let's say, for example, if I were raised in a predominantly Mexican-American, Roman Catholic kind of a neighborhood in Los Angeles somewhere, I might not be that open. I might not have the communication skills that I'm proud to say I do have now. I may have never asked the questions as a child, which I did as a child, why do they do that that way? Mm -hmm. Why do they believe that? What, what's that church they go to? And what's, you know, what do they believe? And why are they doing it this way? And we do it that way. I had this uh, deep curiosity that I think was due to the exposure to all these other cultures in my world as I was growing up. So I'm very grateful for that experience. You know, a couple of days ago, this white man that I was talking to said to me, yeah, you know, when I was growing up, I was really fortunate because I basically just lived in my own white community. And I felt like saying, what do you mean you were fortunate? You were handicapped. Yeah. <laughs> you missed out on, a, on the whole experience of the world. That was not fortunate. I was felt like saying, oh, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for you that you've just only experienced that narrow lens. I'm wondering, Marie, why, why he felt that way. Did Were you able to find out what gave him that perspective that he thought, you know, that that was a good thing? Well, I dug into it a little bit, but he was kind of resistant. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to go too far with that. We'll try something Got different it. and see what he comes up with. But I don't <laughs> yeah. think it ever occurred to him that this was a disadvantage rather than an advantage. Right. It's kind of the I am a full glass kind of thing. Then you can't accept anything else because you already have everything you need, right? It's already full. Yep. Yeah. 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 Anyway, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I want to get back to you. That's, that's all right. So how would you say your temperament and your personality have affected the way you see the world? Your temperament really is what you're born with, but then your personality you've grown into. And I, you already talked about that quite a bit, but you have some temperament things that I don't know it's hard to separate between what's the social context you grew up in, which would be in the beginning, you know, hard work and um, you know, being grateful. That's the social context. But you might have also had some kind of a temperament that people knew you for. Yes. So I've had to balance that out. I think this might be where you're taking the conversation. My temperament is very passionate, very loud, very energetic, tons of energy, can't sit still. And it's been like that since I was a little kid. Back in those days, I don't think they had a term for ADD. They used to call it hyperactive. I mentioned I went to Catholic school. And by the way, I had a great education and some awesome teachers. But yeah, I was 
masking taped to my chair because I could not sit still. I could not stay in my seat and I was very smart. And so I would get done with my work before anybody else. And then I would pester them or talk with them or interrupt them. My mom took me to the doctor. Doctor told her, we're not giving him any medications, no riddle and none of that. Keep him busy. So that has pros and cons. Now, hold that thought for a moment. And I've already mentioned my communication style, our different communication styles and how I'm able to switch and all that. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. So if I'm very energetic and I'm very impatient and I'm ready to get on to the next topic, that often comes out in my conversations with people as an adult now at this age. And I'm still working on that because people who know me know I have good intentions They know I'm very passionate. They know I'll get stuff done and they know I'll have a smile when I do it, all the good stuff. But people who don't really know me or don't know me that well, it may be perceived or it may come off as pushy, bossy, impatient in a negative way, uh, or perhaps even I've been called out as angry. And I've done some deep thought and some deep meditation into that. I honestly don't think I'm an angry person, but it's the passion coming out. And again, talking about communication styles and contexts and what's acceptable in one and perhaps not the other. In a Latin American context, in a Mexican family context, especially in a large family like mine, tons of cousins, brothers and sisters, you have to talk loud and it's wonderful to get passionate and we can step on each other, talk on each other, talk over one another and that's acceptable. But I have to watch that now in the business world. I'm still working on myself in that regard, making sure that what I'm saying and how I'm saying it is landing in the way that I want it to, if that makes sense. I hope that answers the question, Marie. Yeah, yeah, it does. You want it to land in a way that the other person can actually hear it. And I love that you're so aware of, you know, where you were coming from uh, with regards to temperament and your passion and how you've had to think about mitigating that across contexts, right? Yeah. And if I may add another thought to that, when I was younger, 20s, 30s, I had the, uh, I guess you could say the mindset or the attitude or the context of, hey, this is me. I'm just keeping it real. You know, as we say here in LA, keep it real. Yeah, this is me. What you see is what you get. And that might have worked as a cocky 30-year-old, but now (laughs) that attitude doesn't work. You know what I mean? I now think about what are the results I want to get? Forget about, hey, this is me. What you see is what you get. That's not the goal I want. The goal, whatever it is, the goal I want, I have to recognize that. And what's the best way in my communication to reach that goal? That may mean I need to get less passionate, you know, put my hands down or whatever. So I just wanted to share that as well. It's a work in progress, believe me. Yeah. So it probably means you had to be more strategic and pay closer attention to how other people are receiving you and probably be more mindful of where you want the conversation to go, right? That's right. Yeah. When people are younger, I think we all have that where when we're younger, we're a little bit less aware of how we affect others and we probably care less. But uh, after having crashed a few times, we figure (laughs) out that that, that's maybe not where the way we want to live all the time. That's right. That's right. So I'm sure you have hundreds of these examples, but can you talk about a time when you became aware that your cultural understandings were specific to your culture? Now, I know you have that your culture may even be described a little caveat here as being third culture, where you actually can live in multiple worlds easily. Yes. And you can bridge different worlds and you can be on the outside and look in and you can be on the inside and participate. You can do both. So that may be your culture given all of the different experiences that you've had. Or you may have a particular sense of who you are that just got disrupted. Maybe when you went to live in a different country. I don't know. 
Can you yeah, think of some incidents? One has come to my mind already. It's kind of a funny story. I was in high school. Now, keep in mind, I'm you know still living in Compton, uh, multicultural, and I will say by this time in high school, predominantly African-American by about 75%. So by this time in the late 70s, uh, the demographics had shifted. So I'm growing up in a predominantly African-American community with an African-American stepfather, but still in kind of a Latin American context and all of that. So the way we ate dinner, for example, here's the example I'm going to share with you. When we would eat dinner at home, my mom would cook like in those days, all the moms did. And, you know, she would say, dinner's ready. It's on the stove. We kids would go grab a plate, serve ourselves, go sit down at the table, eat, put our kids, put our plates in the, in the sink. Someone would have the duty of washing them and we go back to work. And it, it was not supervised. It was just, you know, my mom made sure we had food and that we ate. And we knew table manners. I mean, you know, there were basic table manners that we knew. I don't want to imply that my mom was uncouth and didn't, you know, train us properly on table manners and such. But it happened, the the aha moment of, oh my gosh, I'm from a whole different culture here, is when I was first invited uh, to one of my best friends, my best friend in high school, whose family was originally from England, and they lived in the town next to Compton, which was predominantly white, and that was Long Beach. And so I got invited to their house for dinner and his mom began to correct me on the proper way to hold my silverware and that I should put my napkin on my lap and that the glass should be above the plate and not next to me so that I don't spill it. And, oh, how dare you get up from the table when you're done without asking, may you be, uh, how do you do, may I, may I be excused? Yes. And I felt bad because I felt somehow or other uncouth, uneducated, low class. She didn't make me feel that way. That's not what I'm implying, but I felt that way. And I thought something was wrong with our family. How come we're not up to standards? We're not up to par, mom. What's going on here? And it wasn't until some years later that I realized, oh, it's just a cultural thing. That's all. Perhaps it was the culture of social class. And you know what? You're probably right. There, Add that to it as well. It's multi-layered, I think. Because- There's differences in the way people speak to each other, depending on what their social class is within the family, eating habits. Some people would just eat and that's what we do. And others are, this is what you need to learn in order to be able to eat in polite company. That's an upper class mentality. It could be that cultures, I remember when I went to France, I had the same feeling as you did because I I went with my fiance and he had wealthy uh, family in Paris. And I had never been in a situation where people had servants before. Like that was just outside of my experience. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) People with servants, we were in these little white, you know, lacy um, aprons and, and, and people would ring for the servants all the time. And it was just such a shock to my system. I just, I couldn't adjust to it, you know, and I kept thinking, what do I need to be able to do to, to make the right moves in this? And it seemed like anything I did would be, like you said, uncouth and kind of kind Country bumpkinish, right? <laughs> well, you know what I realized, if I may add to this a uh, little bit of our conversation here. Yes, I agree that there is some classism or whatever you want to call it here. And especially given that they were from England. And so that's a, a culture unto itself. And they were probably a little higher class anyway. But in the cultural context, I'm not sure that that would be considered even high class in a Mexican-American context. And why I say that is because about five years ago, I was living and working in Mexico. I was a guest of the ex-president of Mexico, President Fox. I don't know if you recall, Presidente Fox, who was the president of Mexico in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were invited to his hacienda as he was collaborating with the company I was working for at the time. And very high class, very rich, a big rancho hacienda with you know people cooking for us and serving us. The lunch lasted three and a half hours. And yet, 
I felt very in my skin. Why? Because I was able to laugh out loud and interrupt people and reach for things across the table and laugh some more and have a good time. And that was high class. So I think there is some classism here. And yet, it's yeah, also yeah. cultural. Yeah. yeah, it totally yeah. makes sense because there are differences across cultures in what would be considered, you know, different socioeconomic strata. Yeah. So yeah. for sure. And in an airplane and you're going somewhere where the cultures are much more used to moving around and talking to each other and interacting. People get up in the plane and start talking across the aisles. Yeah. <laughs> and and other planes, if anybody did that, there'd be a loudspeaker telling them to sit down and put their yeah. seatbelts on. And it's just like it's this you can, it's the same kind of it's the same kind of thing really. Yeah. I really like that example that you gave and also the reminder that things are both cultural and social class at the same time. Nothing's really a clear delineation in the category. Everything is sort of mixed up together. There's overlaps. I agree. Mm -hmm. I forgot to ask you earlier, what have you adopted into your leadership and culture from experiences of living in other countries? Like maybe in India, is there something from India that you adopted into your own cultural practices? Yeah. And I'm going to look at it the opposite way, if you don't mind. I've learned what not to do. (laughs) or I've learned what what I don't want to do as a leader, as a manager. I've learned uh, in other cultures, uh, those kind of things. So for example, and I know things are changing, and especially now, given that we're a majority of the people, I would say, are working remotely, and now we have more opportunity to connect across borders, et cetera. Things are changing. But let's just say six years ago when I was living in India, seven years ago, still a very top-down, hierarchical kind of a leadership structure, if you will. Where here, for example, I'll compare it and contrast it here in the United States, we're often encouraged at meetings to speak up and you know, call out where you might see gaps and even ask the leader to, you know, explain why this or that or the other, you know, we're coached to go ahead and speak up. And that's actually what I do with fears, you know, speak up when you see something, you should speak up because the risk might be too great if you don't. But that doesn't necessarily, or back then, six, seven, eight years ago, did not really work uh, in that Indian context. Orders were given, this is what we're going to do, here are your marching orders. I'll check back. We'll come back in a week and find out what the progress is. You know, very top down. You don't ask questions. It didn't really work for me. Maybe that was because I was born and raised in the United States. But I have a feeling that it was also due to my 18 years with Marriott and the Ritz-Carlton, where we're given a lot of ownership, a lot of accountability, a lot of decisions that we're able to make on our own, that kind of an egalitarian kind of a feel or kind of a culture. So when I went to India to live in India and I saw that and I had to work underneath a boss who was very top down, very patriarchal, it gave me an experience of it. I'm glad I had that experience and I know the pros to that. Things get done for sure. Targets are made for sure. Uh, But people work in fear and that's not good. People are delivering because there's a fear of uh, retaliation if they don't deliver on time under budget. Yeah, there are pros and cons to every cultural style. You having experienced that probably allows you to see better when you came back to the United States, what it felt like for people who were coming here from India. They would be expecting completely different setup, completely different relationship with their managers. And when their their American managers say, just I just want you to take initiative and speak up, they would have been horrified in the same way you would have been horrified thinking that people couldn't have a voice and had to be, you know, obedient and couldn't contribute beyond what their role was in the hierarchy. Both of you would have been equally horrified. And that's the kind of work I did with a, a previous organization in a previous role. I was in charge of all learning and development for the U.S. and Latin America. It was an IT outsourcing company based in India. 
So we had a lot of Indian expats coming to the United States to work with the clients here in the United States, large companies, you know, in a consultant role, and they had never lived or worked in this culture before. And so I had to give them that kind of training on what it's like in, in a very direct communication style culture like the United States and speaking up and asking questions when you're not sure, being proactive, all those things. Yeah, I had to actually deliver trainings on that. And a little bit of a hurdle, but once people get it, of course, you know, they acclimate. Well, it doesn't feel natural. And in fact, it often feels wrong. It feels like you're moving against your values and that you're being inauthentic. And so uh, it takes a while, kind of like if I had to brush my teeth with my non-dominant hand, it would take me a long time to get used to doing it. I'd probably never like it, but I would get better at it. Yes. yes. So, you know, and I think it also depends on the person and where they can be flexible in their cultural norms. Don't think it's an across the board cultural norm thing. It's not like, oh, I'm flexible or I'm not flexible. Some things will be really hard for one person and those things won't be hard for another person at all. And other things that you find easy, someone else will go, what, that's tricky. How did you ever negotiate that? So, Mm -hmm. you know, you might run into some kind of a situation where it's pretty simple for you to make a cultural shift. And yet you'll be hit the next day with something where it's not easy. And you think, you know what, I'm not going to make that shift. I'm going to put my foot down and say no. Like what you just said about Indian management and the parts that you don't like. You're saying, no, I'm not going to adopt that. I don't want that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because I've seen how it works for me and I've seen the results. I was able to compare and contrast 18 years of experience with Ritz-Carlton and then another two or three years with Indian-based companies and just being able to see the difference and seeing the pros and the cons for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, as you said a moment ago, nothing's really black or white and talking about the expats coming from, in particular, coming from India to the United States, it's so interesting because on one hand, many people just, it was the dream to come over here and get paid the big bucks and, you know, do all the things that people dream of and see on TV After a year or so, some of them are ready to go home. They miss their culture. This happens to anyone, right? Right. But I know, and I'm still friends with people from Microsoft who have come over here to the United States that have no plans on going back. They love this culture. They love just assimilating into the U.S. American way of doing things and thinking and all of that. Uh, So, you know, it's a personality thing and it's an individual thing, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. I have a friend from Rwanda who was an airline hostess and she was used to flying around the world. And when the genocide hit, she just took off with her kids on a flight that she could easily put together and came to Canada. And she was very unhappy in the first couple of places she lived in. And then she said, you know, we're just going to go west. Let's just see what the other part of the country's like. She ended up in Edmonton, Alberta, which is cold, not even close to Rwanda temperature wise. It's freakishly cold. People are much more conservative. She walked in out of the airport and she just said, this feels like home. That was like 20 years ago. She's just said, this is my home. I just, I've always, she said, if 99 people told me you don't belong here, go back to Rwanda. And one person says, welcome. The only person I listen to is the one that says, welcome, because this is my home. I feel it in my bones, she said. Isn't that (laughs) cool? I love it. Yeah, I love it. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Ritz-Carlton because you've mentioned it a few times. Wouldn't you say that that has really shaped you? Absolutely, without a doubt, has shaped me, has shaped the way I look at management, leadership, ownership, customer service, big time. (laughs) I'm the biggest customer service critique ever. You don't want to go to a restaurant or any other place where we're getting bad service because you'll hear me (laughs) <laughs> you'll, you'll hear me start to critique it. So yes, the Ritz-Carlton has uh, been a big influence on how I, I view business and work and management, leadership, all that. 
focus on customer service and focus on excellence, other things? Yeah. Well, you know, all of that. Let me just uh, let me just share my story with you. You know, I started at the Ritz-Carlton when I was 20 years old and I was a busboy. And what I love about the Ritz-Carlton, now I haven't worked for them in 20 years, so I'm using the present tense. Maybe things have changed, but I don't think so. The philosophy at that time was we invest in our people and we grow our people and we promote from within as much as possible. That gains trust. It builds a strong relationship and the results are super. The results are great. And so I started as a busboy. And then I wanted to be a banquets waiter. I was given an opportunity and told what I needed to do to make that happen. I became a banquets waiter. Then I became a banquets captain. Then I'm watching all these people in the spa getting massage. And I became friends with a massage therapist. And I got a massage. I'm like, you know what? I want to do that. So I talked to the spa director. She said, here's what you got to do. Go to school, get your certificate, come back. If there's an opening, you can transfer. I lined it up and did exactly that. I wound up being a massage therapist in the spa at the Ritz-Carlton for four years massaged princes of Saudi Arabia, the, the movie stars, all kinds of people. And then I decided I wanted to get into hotel management. And so from there, I moved into the front area. I became guest services. I had to start their parking cars. I'd already been with the Ritz 10 years. Now I move into a different department. You got to park cars first before you can be a bellman, etc. So I worked myself through the ranks. I was trained by the very best I was given feedback on where I needed to improve and I was praised where I did well. We made a lot of money in those years just with tips, you know, really what we used to say, you know, buffing out our guests, you know, making sure our guests were just super wowed. And I look back on that and I try to recall what were those impacts, their greatest impacts. Number one, we were given the ownership, the accountability and the trust to take care of any of our guests in the Ritz-Carlton in those days and probably still to this day, it never existed the phrase, let me get my manager. <laughs> you, the employee, are fully empowered with $2,000 of imaginary money in your pocket to turn that guest around on the spot. Do you know how empowering that is? That's Do you know how empowering it is to tell a guest who is about to walk out because they didn't get the room that they had you know, asked for, the beachfront room or whatever it was to be able. It doesn't matter if you're a busboy or a massage therapist or a manager, you can handle that and take care of it. And then that guest turns around three days later and says, thank you for that. I had a great time. I don't know what I would have done without you. It is just, it's a beautiful thing. And I don't want to get hyperbole about it, but it is. And so- It is, it's, was, a, it's the antidote to bureaucracy. <laughs> It is. And we had self-directed work teams. I was part of the big shift in 1991 towards total quality management. And they got rid of middle management and we had self-directed work teams. And at first we fought against it. We thought, whoa, wait a minute, what's all this? But then after a couple of years, it was empowering. We make the best decisions for our department. We know what the guests want. We can make those decisions, you know, within reason, of course, you know, there's always mm -hmm. budgetary conversations and all right, that. But right, right but we were given empowerment. And so I just, I love that. I miss it. Um, and then that translates to the customer service as well. As I already mentioned, you are empowered to take care of anything. And the last thing I'll say on this is the culture that the Ritz Carlton created and have maintained is there's no difference between what they call internal guests. That's us, all the employees, you know, behind the scenes and our external guests. Those are our paying hotel guests. So behind the scenes, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, wherever, you know, not in front of the guests, 
we still treat one another just like guests. We're, we speak politely, we deliver when we can, we help, we support, all those things just as if we're guests. We're just internal guests. And it just makes for such a smooth working environment. So yes, the Ritz-Carlton has, had a, has been a big influence on me. Well, they should pay you for a PR because, man, that was great. I just want to, I just want to go online and book a room. I'm telling you, it's just great. Yeah. Um, you know, I think what you spoke to is the power of a structure that emerges from the combination of a culture that's service oriented. I'm struggling with how to say this, but it's the whole culture is built around serving the guests. That's right. And because of that, and this desire to be of service, I think that that's what allowed this system to emerge that was empowering. And that when you see both the employees and the people who are paying to be there as one and the same, it's brilliant. It's really the only way to go for having a sustained culture and sustainable changes. Because if you want to make a change, you're going to test it on both sides. And you're going to be really careful about how that impacts the entire experience for everybody, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. And if I could just say one more thing on this, you know, um, they used to tell us, and I remember in the early days, they used to say, okay, so if you meet guest expectations, uh, all right, so what? They have a clean room. They expected that. There's toilet paper. They expected that. They wanted clean sheets and everything is in order. The iron is there. Everything is in place. Great. You met their expectations. So what? Anybody can meet guest expectations. How are you going to wow them? How are you going to meet their unexpressed wishes? How are you going to be one step ahead of the game and get them what they want, what they need before they even thought of it or asked for it? That is wowing the guest. And so what that did for us young folks back then, I was 22, 23, 24 as a banquets waiter and a massage therapist. Uh, I'm thinking more now of being a banquets waiter. We used to have competitions amongst ourselves on who could, as we said, as we used to say, buff out the guest tables the best and before any of the other waiters. And what I mean by that is all wine glasses filled, all water glasses filled, all dirty plates removed. Everybody's got bread. Everyone's got butter. And in those days, no cigarette butts in the ashtrays. Everybody has clean ashtrays. Buff out tables. And when a man or a woman would pull out a cigarette, again, those are back in the 80s, you could smoke. They'd pull out a cigarette before they even had a chance to reach for the lighter, we would be there with lighter in hand and light that cigarette. And we got a kick out of that. I mean, it was like a game. It was a competition we played amongst ourselves, the employees, to see how and who could wow the guest the best. I love that. It is beautiful. I'm sure that's been just foundational in the way you approach everything that you do now. Yeah. And that's what I try to instill that kind of an idea now as I'm doing consulting and training and the things that I do with Fierce as well. Hmm. This has been so interesting, Luis. Okay, we're almost at the end of the interview and I wanted to ask you, you know, people are hiring you and they used to hire you uh, in different contexts. So what would you say to them about how to work best with you? How to work best with me is to have some fun, first of all. I'll just say this straight out. For people who are very, uh, very serious and business focused all the time, it doesn't really work for me, although I'll do it. I like to have a little fun. I like to be loose a little bit. I like to laugh a little bit, laugh at our mistakes. And I'm very much, um, I don't enjoy working in a silo. I love working in collaboration with others, sharing ideas and even having my own ideas shot down with a better idea. I love that kind of stuff. So for me, it's important to have lots of energy, have fun, uh, and collaboration is key. Awesome. Anything else you'd like to say? 
Anything else I'd like to say is the one thing I'm learning right now is what works for me and what I have found works for other people when we're talking about conversations and different types of communication styles. What has been landing for me, number one, especially now with everything that's going on in in the public discourse around politics and race, I am now going into my conversations with curiosity rather than going into conversations trying to make my point first or prove my point first or share my perspective first. I'm learning better now to go into conversations and saying something like, Marie, how do you see this? (laughs) What are your thoughts on this, right? So that's kind of my ending thoughts for today. That is a really, really important thing for us to do. And I'm seeing that more and more. I mean, you're seeing the polarized views of people being very judgmental, but we're seeing a big openness and a big curiosity that we didn't see before. That is it's very encouraging. It's exciting to see. And the more we can promote that, the more likely we are to have an equitable world, don't you think? Yeah, because then it leads to understanding. If I come into a conversation with you and I want to prove my point without asking you how you see it first, I'm short-sighted, I'm nearsighted, or I don't have the full picture. But if I come in to the conversation and see how you see it, what's your perspective, what are your thoughts around it, etc., ah, now I've learned something. I have more to work with here, if that makes any sense, right? It does. It does. Yeah. So here's your promo spot. Would you like to talk a little bit about Fierce or anything else that you'd like to promote right now? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to direct the listeners, if you don't mind, to our website and to our podcast website. So this is where we will host this podcast recording. But what I love about our website is that we also have a resources tab that they'll find right next to podcasts uh, with tons of free resources on how to improve your communication, how to improve your conversations to improve your results. So I'll direct everyone to the Fierce website. It's Fierce Inc. F-I-E-R-C-E-I-N-C.com slash podcasts. Start there. And then go ahead and go to the resources tab and explore and see what we have to offer. The second thing I would invite the listeners to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I love expanding my network and networking with others like me and who are doing things that uh, we're doing similar things, et cetera. So find me on LinkedIn, Luis Gonzalez on LinkedIn. Awesome. We will certainly put all of those links into the show notes so that people can connect with you. And I want to thank you so much for spending the time telling me a little bit about your story and what keeps you passionate and where the influences are in your life. It's been a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity, Marie. Loved it. Luis Gonzalez said, If I come into a conversation with you to prove my point without asking you how you see it first, I don't have the full picture. But if I come into the conversation and seek out your perspective, now I've learned something. This is the approach that Lewis takes to his intercultural coaching for individuals and businesses. This approach comes from his Mexican-American and multilingual background, as well as his extensive traveling experiences. I really enjoyed hearing about his journey through the corridors of intercultural learning. I found Luis's advice for crossing cultural communication barriers insightful and interesting. It makes me so happy that you could join me on this interview with Luis Gonzalez, and I hope that you learned something you can apply to your own interactions with others. Thank you so much for listening to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. It simply wouldn't be the same without an audience. Help spread the word and share episodes you particularly like with a friend as you listen. It only takes a moment and helps us reach both our listener goal and our ultimate goal of happy and productive workplaces. Remember to check out the Culture and Leadership Connections Patreon site and consider becoming a subscriber. Make culture 
and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Hey, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Do you love these insightful and moving interviews published twice monthly for your listening pleasure? You may not know that it costs between $300 and $500 per month to pay for our podcast episodes. Shocking, but true. Well, now you can help support this podcast by showing your love with a little skin in the game real money on the Patreon website. For as little as $5 or as much as $50 a month, you can contribute to keep culture and leadership connections alive and healthy. Your donation is invaluable in helping us connect the hearts and minds of people across cultures and professions for happier and more humane workplaces. I know you will call on your inner generosity, knowing that your contribution is a practical demonstration of love and support. Check out the patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page to see what subscription level feels right for you and find out about the special loyalty perks at each patron level. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. Thank you for your generosity.